It's good to be the top chook. At least that's according to Thorleif Schelderup Ebbe. I don't know if he said his name right, but he's a German guy who lived around 100 years ago and he wrote about chickens. He'd raised chickens since he was 10 years old and his PhD thesis involved talking about chickens. And he described the hack ordinal, where the top chicken establishes herself by hacking or pecking all of the chickens beneath her. The bottom chicken is generally the weakest one, and she gets pecked by everybody else. And you can tell who she is because she's the one with the least amount of feathers left. And so the order is then established between kind of the top chook and the bottom chook, and everyone else lines up in between. So it's good to be the top chook because she gets to eat first and she gets to keep all of her feathers. Now this sort of behaviour is seen in humans too. That's why we speak about pecking orders. That's what a hack ordnung is. And you can quickly figure out what the pecking order is in the average family or workplace by looking at who gets yelled at the most. You know, dad comes home grumpy, he yells at his wife, the wife, yell, uh, the wife yells at the kids, the kids yell at each other, and the youngest kid yells at the dog. That's the pecking order. And it's no surprise that Christians think about the pecking order too and who the top chook might be. Like anyone else, Christians can find themselves arguing about who is the greatest in their church, you know, who gets to eat first, who gets the best seat, who gets most time with the pastor. This is one of the reasons why God has given us chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel. Because it's about how Christians are to relate to one another. And it actually does away with the whole idea of the top chook and a pecking order. Because it redefines greatness. Next week, Aaron's going to speak to us about the duty that all Christians have to one another. Uh, then we're going to look at how to approach someone when you have an issue you need to raise with them. And the final section of this chapter is about what it means to keep forgiving people even when they keep hurting us. Now, much of this is about how to make peace with your Christian brothers and sisters. And so in our gospel communities, our Bible studies, we're actually going to be spending a few weeks looking at key principles of peacemaking. So today, we're kicking it all off. We're starting with verses 1 to 5, and these set the foundation for all of these topics. Jesus redefines what true greatness looks like and shows that kingdom greatness, greatness in the kingdom of heaven, is actually revealed by children. In fact, we're going to see today our big idea is that children reveal the way of the kingdom of heaven. So let's turn to verse 1 now and we'll get started. And you can sit in your welcome card or your Bible if you've got one open. I'll read out verse 1 for us. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, the disciples were fighting over who was the greatest. You know, who's the top chook? And perhaps some of them were worried that maybe the apostle Peter was Jesus' favourite. After all, as we've seen in recent chapters, he got special treatment. Remember, he was the one who guessed uh, that Jesus was actually the Messiah, the son of the living God, and Jesus praised him for that. Also, Peter, along with James and John, went up onto the mountain for the transfiguration, but Jesus told him not to tell the other disciples what happened, so they knew that he'd gone and had some amazing secret experience. 
and even the last passage we looked at, people came and asked whether Jesus paid the temple tax, but they asked Peter about that. And so it wouldn't be surprising at all if the disciples were feeling just a little bit jealous. They want to know who's at the top of the pecking order in the kingdom of heaven. Well, clearly Jesus is at the top, but who's next? You know, who gets to yell the most? Who gets the most prestige? Who gets to keep most of their feathers? Well, Jesus challenges this whole approach by redefining greatness and illustrating how relationships in the kingdom are shaped by how we enter the kingdom. Look at what he does in verses 2, 3 and 4. He called a little child to them and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that the humility of children reveals the way into the kingdom of heaven. So the first observation I want to make under that is that children are dependent on adults. We read here that Jesus takes a child and puts this child amongst the group of disciples. And the Greek doesn't actually specify the gender, so I'm going to go with her. You might picture a boy or a girl, it doesn't matter. And the word for child used here means little child. So this girl is probably either you know, a toddler or a bit older. She's standing, so clearly she's not an infant. But she's still a little child. Perhaps what we might call a preschooler. And Jesus says that the way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to become like little children. The disciples need to humble themselves. This is the way to true greatness. You know, sometimes people read this passage and think that being like little children is about innocence, you know, purity. The disciples are guilty of fighting and arguing amongst each other and they need to become pure like the little girl before them. They need to repent of their sins and stop being corrupted by adult, grown-up temptations and then they can enter the kingdom. But that can't be the case because if you're a parent, you know that children are not innocent especially by the time they can walk. And if you've ever witnessed the school ground or even remember your time in the school ground as a kid, children fight about pecking orders too, don't they? Jesus is talking about humility. Do you see in verse 4 that he says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child. This is actually about status. In the Roman Empire, children had no legal status at all. They came completely under their father's care and authority and if he didn't like them, he could just get rid of them. In fact, infanticide was an accepted method of family planning in the Roman Empire. Now even today, children are dependent on adults. They have far more rights, they have greater status in society, but they still need to be cared for, don't they? They have a lowly position, not because of their value, but because of their capabilities. They have to put their trust in others to look after them. Children are an example of humility because their helplessness and their weakness mean they have to admit their dependence upon others. And so what we learn from this, picturing this small child in the midst of the disciples, this is a picture that Christians are dependent on God. God. 
We're all like children compared to God and we need his help. In spiritual terms, none of us are independent or self-sufficient. We're not good enough for God. We're not good enough to enter heaven. We can actually operate in this life like there's a moral or spiritual pecking order. You know, we look at the people around us and we try to put ourselves in order based on how we think we're doing. And so if I think I'm better at controlling my temper than you lot, then I'm above you on the pecking order. But if I think you lot are you know, better at being kind and being generous, well, then I'm below you on the pecking order. And so we tend to think that the aim of life is to be as high up as you can be before you die. We may not be the top chook, but as long as we're above people that we think are really dodgy, then we go, well, I'm doing okay. And we can even think that coming along to church or being a Christian is a way to move up the pecking order. That's not how God sees it. See, God doesn't care whether you're better than someone or worse than someone else. God wants to know whether you love him and whether you love others. He wants to know if you do that perfectly because that's what he demands of all of us. And the truth is, we all fail. When we start talking about who's better than someone else, you know, who's more spiritual, who's more likely to be saved, we're a bit like prisoners in jail. You know, we're fighting over who's more or less guilty. It doesn't matter, you're all in jail. We're all in trouble. It doesn't matter who's in more trouble or who's in less trouble. We all need help. And so that's why the way into the kingdom of heaven is revealed by the humility of children. We need to recognize our dependence. We need to be rescued. We need to be set free. That's why God the Father sent his son, Jesus. He died on the cross to pay the debt for our wrongdoing and to set us free from our slavery to death and sin. Jesus has done what we couldn't do on our own. But we need to accept this payment. And that takes humility. That means admitting your own faults and failings. That means admitting your weakness and your insufficiency. You couldn't do it on your own. That means becoming dependent like a little child. That's hard to do. In Mark chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says these confronting words, and you'll see them in your welcome card. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It's pretty confronting, isn't it? We come to God not to show off all the wonderful things we've done. We come to God with empty hands and we ask for his mercy. We cast aside all of our supposed good deeds, our perceived position in the moral pecking order, and we simply ask to be welcomed into the kingdom. And so this brings us to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. The way into the kingdom defines the way you live in the kingdom. See, all other religions, worldviews, philosophies, spiritualities, they, they look to the great people as the example of how to be great yourself, how to achieve something. The people who do the mighty deeds of power, uh, amazing spiritual acts, who serve sacrificially. And these people are seen to reveal the way of salvation. And so you have to work to be as great as them. And if you work hard enough, if you become great enough, then maybe you'll be all right. 
But Jesus looks to a little child who has nothing to offer, nothing worth boasting in, nothing to look at except for her lowliness. And he says, be like this little child and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. Just let that sink in. Be like a helpless, needy child and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, the way to be great in the kingdom is first to be low. And since we enter by being low, we can't very well brag about how great we are. Can you see how Jesus turns the whole discussion of greatness on its head? That's why he then makes the amazing statement in verse 5. Check it out. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. True members of the kingdom welcome children. Now, How can a Christian turn to God in their own weakness and beg for help and mercy and then turn to a child who also needs help and treat that child with cruelty or indifference? I'm actually going to spend a bit of time now thinking about what that means. Looking at how valuing children is actually a sign of the kingdom. It's a sign that you belong to the kingdom. It doesn't cause you to be in the kingdom, but it's what kingdom people do. First of all, Jesus himself modelled this because he frequently welcomed children. Listen to what happens in Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. If you've got a Bible open, you can flip forward to Matthew 19 or it's in your welcome card. I'll read out from verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, some people will tell you that from these verses that the kingdom of heaven belongs to all little children and so all children are born Christians until they decide to leave the kingdom of their own free will. But in reality, what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom is meant for those who have a childlike trust in Jesus, those who are willing to openly receive his gift of salvation. And so on the one hand, children aren't automatic members, but also they aren't excluded automatically because they're young. In fact, children are more likely to trust in Jesus than adults because children don't have as much baggage and pride and suspicion as we do. But more than that, Jesus is also saying that children are in fact important. The disciples thought that Jesus wouldn't be bothered with snot-nosed little kids that just whine and smell and wreck everything. But they were wrong. Jesus welcomes little children. Jesus values little children. He has time for them. In fact, we know that children were amongst the groups that followed him. We read about the feeding of the 4,000 and 5,000, and it clearly says there were children there as well. In fact, the, the very event we're studying today in chapter 18 shows that there were children around because there's actually a child on hand while he's talking to the disciples. It's not like he just magically materialised one out of nowhere. There are actually people around him, including children. Jesus loved and valued children. So in verse 5, Jesus is showing that valuing children reveals your status in the kingdom. And that's because Jesus' followers 
should welcome children. He looks at the little girl in their midst and says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. To put it simply, if you think you're too good for children, then you'll probably think you're too good for Jesus too. It's not because children are more precious than adults. Rather, it's because receiving Christ is itself about humility and Christian humility will enable you to receive children. They can't pay us back. And so love of them is like how the Father loves us. We've got nothing to pay God back either. If you despise children, if you want nothing to do with them, then perhaps you need to check your attitude towards Jesus because, God forbid, you may find yourself to be outside of the kingdom. Now, Jesus wants Christians to become like children in their faith, but he also wants them to be kind to children. We're to welcome them in his name. And this means welcoming them in your identity as a Christian. This also means we value children for Jesus' sake. And not for our benefit, not even necessarily for the benefit of the child. We value them because Jesus does and we value Jesus. So what does valuing children actually look like? Well, Christians are to value children in the world and we're to value children in the church in particular. So let's look at the first one. Christians are to be concerned for children all around the world. In a recent study, it was estimated that 26% of the world's population are children 14 years old and younger. And in some countries, particularly those in Africa, the number is high as 40%. In Australia, there are almost 4.5 million children under 14. There are a lot of kids out there. And as Christians, we have a duty to care for them. We should be thinking about how can we keep them safe? How can we help them to grow up to be participating members of society? And Christians have actually done a lot of good over the centuries in this area. In the 1800s, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury was a man named Anthony Ashley Cooper, also known as Lord Ashley, and he was a politician. And he lobbied for greater regulations to help improve the conditions of workers in London. And he had a particular desire to help children that was born out of his own Christian convictions. It was common at the time for people to employ children because they were cheap and they could get into the small places adults couldn't get into. Well, Lord Ashley got legislation through Parliament that went a long way to giving children greater protection. For example they banned children from working as chimney sweeps. Now, we may not have the same avenues as Lord Ashley. If you do, great, make use of them. But there are many ways that Christian adults can help out the children of the world. An easy one is to sponsor a child through an aid organisation so that your money can go towards providing for the basic physical needs, perhaps even spiritual needs, of underprivileged children. Tracy and I sponsor a child from Rwanda and a child from Indonesia. And there are some children that don't even have parents at all. And so many Christians actually consider fostering or adopting children. If that all seems too much, too much of a challenge for you, then maybe just be involved in your local school. That's easy if you're a parent with kids there. But if you don't, there are actually other options. In fact, you might like to be involved in Kids Hope, 
which Trevorterhouse is setting up in partnership with our church and a, a local primary school. And so you can actually talk to Trav about that. But the simplest way of all to value children is just to make time for them. Now, we shouldn't look down on them because God doesn't look down on us. Now, as Christians, we should value all children, but I believe we should particularly value children in the church. God in his sovereignty actually determines that some children will be born into Christian homes and they receive certain privileges. For those of you who were here last year when we looked at Romans 3, we saw that it's actually good to grow up in the church. We learned that children in ancient Israel had the privilege of hearing the very words of God and knowing his commands. In the same way, the children of Christians hear God's words. They have his promises held out to them. They have the Bible taught to them. They learn the way God wants them to live. Many of us have benefited growing up in a Christian home and being taught about God from a young age. And you know, when a child is in part of a Christian home, we teach them to view God as their father, don't we? We don't treat them as outsiders or guests of our church. We treat them as insiders. We treat them as part of our church family. We treat them as mini disciples who just need to be encouraged to grow into their faith. Now listen to me clearly. This is no guarantee that these children are actually saved or that they'll grow up to be followers of Christ. They do need to one day make that decision for themselves, but in the meantime, there are three important things we can do. The first is to hold out the promises of God to them whenever we can. The second is to teach them the truth about God and the way Christians are to live. Now, I know some people might feel that we shouldn't teach Christian values, Christian morality to children since they're not actually Christians yet. And I hear some of the weight of that argument, but what's the alternative? Are we going to teach them the world's values? Are we going to teach them the alternative way to live? Why not just teach them God's way to live? And the third thing we can do is to include them in church life. I've been to some churches where children come and sit through the whole church service and they're just completely ignored for the whole service. Other churches, children are shipped off to the children's program before the church service even starts so that parents and kids don't even see each other. So one of the things I love about our church is that we work hard to include them as much as we can in all that we do. And just like any family, sometimes there'll be things that we do that are geared more towards children. Other times they're more suited to everyone. And sometimes we just need some adult time, don't we? We need to talk about some grown-up things. That's okay. And so we can value children in our church by being a family church. And so that means we're not going to be adult-centric so that everything we do is geared towards adults. We're not going to be kid-centric. But you know, it also means we're not going to be family-centric in that everything has to be geared towards the nuclear family of mum, dad and two kids. We're actually a broad, diverse family and we do different things together at different times. So let's build on that a little bit more and think, some more, think about some more practical ways that we can value children at Darabin Presbyterian Church. I want to look at four broad headings. The first is that we can value children by ensuring that parents are discipling their children. The greatest influence in a child's life is their parents. 
So it makes sense that they should be the primary discipler. It's important that parents don't outsource discipleship to the church. Now, I know that all of us parents struggle with this and feel inadequate, but we each have the Holy Spirit. We've got the Word of God. They bring the power that we need to do this. Also, we live by the gospel. We don't have to be perfect in front of our kids. We'll make mistakes. We just show them that we are people who daily rely on God's mercy and his forgiveness. We rely on the gospel. So dads, mums, make an effort to teach the Bible and help your kids learn how to live the Christian life. Now, if you want some advice, some resources to help you do that, then please come and speak to me or Aaron or even to Anna. And you know, a great way for us to actually help children is to have them serve alongside their parents at church and ministry teams. So the elders, along with Anna and other key leaders, have been doing some thinking about the best way to make this happen. Now, we've kind of got this key idea that we don't want children to be serving in a way that would prevent them from attending their age-appropriate teaching times, but there are actually lots of options for them to serve alongside mum and dad on different ministry teams. So feel free to speak to Anna or myself about this if you want to know more. Now, having made it clear that parents are to disciple their children, we can actually add now that church definitely does help with this. The second way we value children at DPC is by having adults invest in children's ministry. Now, you might even be wondering why it is that we even need to have this sermon today. Because surely we do stacks for kids already. Yeah, we have Crash, we've got DP Kids, we've got ELOS for the youth. All of these run during the service. We've got specialised kids programs that run during our church camps. And we're even setting up a new ministry next month called DP Kinder. Now, all this takes up a lot of time and energy, a lot of volunteer time. But we think it's important because investing in children's ministry is a smart investment. It's a wonderful investment. They're like sponges and they're learning so much. They're figuring out their view of the world. And if we want the next generation of Christians to be mature, godly followers of Christ, then we need to start investing in them now. In fact, I just want to pause here for a second. And thank all of you who labour in these areas in our church. Actually, it's quite a lot of uni students who work in this area. And we're just grateful for the effort that you put into teaching the children of our church family, teaching them about Jesus. And this comes at a great cost to you personally in terms of your time, your money, your energy. It also means that you regularly miss parts of the service, including the sermon. And actually... I'm sure there are some people, some children's ministry volunteers who are listening to this sermon now on the podcast. They're not here because they're actually in the kids' ministry right now. So if you're listening to me now, a big thank you to you, a double thank you. We really appreciate what you do. <laughs> so, so may knowing this actually fill you with joy, knowing that you are welcoming Jesus as you welcome those children. But let's say you're not able to serve in a formal way in children's ministry. That doesn't mean that you can't value the children here at DPC. Our next point is that adults build relationships with church children. Do you know the names of the kids in our church? Do you know which parents they belong to? Do you know anything about their family or their school or their interests? Do you know their struggles? Do you know their allergies or medical conditions? I mean, that could be life-saving information. 
I'm not saying that I'm expecting all men to be best friends with 11-year-olds. But what I'm saying is that church is about relationships with different types of people. And so if you only know adults in our church, then you're actually ignoring half of the people here. So we can get to know our church children. We can pray for them. We can encourage them. Just ask them about how school's going. Now, having said that, of course, all of this has to be done in appropriate ways, doesn't it? With appropriate boundaries. And so that leads us to our last point. Adults create a safe church. This is a key way that we value children at DPC. We want a church that's safe for all people, but especially children. And so we have important safe church practices that we follow. We're actually bound by the safe church policy and the safe church code of conduct that have been set by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Victoria. Yes, that is a bit of a mouthful. But these documents are important. We always have copies up on our welcome hub for you to look at. You can also go to safechurchpcv.org.au. We can even speak to our safe church rep, Ricky Smith, over there, and she can answer your questions that you might have. We've got a process for approving people to work with children, which includes having them get a working with children's check. They have to add our church as one of the organisations they volunteer with, so if any red flags do ever come up, we're notified. Also, children's ministry volunteers and certain other key leaders have to do Safe Church basic training and then an annual Safe Church refresher course. In fact, some of you might be excited to know that I've updated our Alvanto system this week. So when you log into your account, you'll see a new page with all the information. Nice and easy there so you know how to do your refresher course and how to let Ricky know that you've done that. You'll see the details are actually on the back of the welcome card too, explaining what to do. Now, you might wonder, why would I talk about these things? It seems a bit of a waste in a sermon. But actually, this is how we show that we value children. And we want to be as public and upfront about all of these steps and processes as we can because we actually want to show that we welcome children. We welcome everybody, but especially children. Also, I think this should act as a deterrent for anyone who might come to our church with evil intention. Hopefully they'll see all these steps and checkpoints and they'll just leave, they won't even bother. The second way we can create a safe church is to consider venue safety. Now we're getting really practical, aren't we? It's important for us to be mindful of even the physical space during our church gatherings. We want children to be safe, and this is one of the key roles of the Board of Management. Uh, Last year, a concern was raised about when we stack our chairs after the service, what if they get knocked over and squash a kid? So we introduced new steps, new processes for packing up, and we uh, asked parents to not let their kids sort of play up the front here. Also, Anna will email the parents from time to time, reminding them about safety tips for children playing downstairs. And so if you do notice an issue, speak up. It's okay. Let the board of management know. You can speak to one of the board members or write to our secretary, Steve Drew. Also, if you see children doing something dangerous, you're allowed to speak up. You're allowed to say something. Uh, You can approach the children in an appropriate way if you feel you can. But also, feel free to gently speak to their parents or one of the leaders of the church. Because surely it's better to speak up than to not. And if we try to be gracious when we raise concerns, and hopefully that means people will be gracious in listening to us and hearing what we've got to say. Well, there's a lot more that could be said. 
but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> we haven't really looked at how these principles apply not just to children, but to all sorts of people. People who might be more dependent, more needy, who need more help. But hopefully you can see how these principles might apply to them. I want to leave you now with an encouragement. You know, often in life we wonder about who the top chook is, you know, how we can climb up the pecking order. But Jesus teaches us that there's a different path to greatness, a different measure of greatness. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is about humility and admitting your dependence. It's about admitting our need and valuing other people who are needy. And so my encouragement is to learn from children. Sometimes we might feel like, I'm glad that I'm not a kid anymore. That was terrible. I don't ever want to think about that again. But we actually need children in our lives to remind us. They reveal the way of the kingdom of heaven, the way to enter it and the way to live well in it. So spend time with them. Welcome the children in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for this short but helpful passage that reminds us to check our own hearts, to be thinking about what it means to be truly great. It's actually seen in acknowledging that we are low, that we cannot earn our way into heaven. And so we thank you that you care for us and you value us. And so may we value and care for others too, especially little children. Amen.